Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Earlier this year, there was an explosion of IPOs, but many of them came with an odd distinction. There was no actual company inside. Instead, these listings were shell companies raising loads of cash in order to find their own business down the road. It might sound a little backwards, but it's been dominating the IPO world of late. Welcome to the world of special purpose acquisition companies, better known as SPACs. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to the Readback from Barron's. This season, we're winding back the clock and unraveling the stories of the key companies behind the biggest and most fascinating IPOs to answer a key question. How do we put a price on innovation? Today on the show, SPACs are shaking up the IPO world. How far can it go? Let's pick up where we left off last week. It's been almost two years since WeWork tried to go public. Since then, the company has largely fallen off the radar as a whole new management team tried to right the ship and undo the damage from its failed IPO. It didn't help, of course, that the company was beset by the toughest climate in a century for commercial real estate as the pandemic shut down offices throughout the world. And yet, WeWork isn't done. The company has found a new way to go public, and it's very much in line with 2021 because it involves a SPAC. It's a move Renaissance Capital founder Kathleen Smith had expected back in February when we first started interviewing folks for our IPO season of the Readback. There's so many of these private companies that may not be able to get through the scrutiny of the IPO process, but they now they have this outlet in the SPAC vehicle. WeWork, for example, could find a way to go public through a SPAC. Lo and behold, by the end of March... Another big step for WeWork in the post-Adam Newman era, the co-working company agreeing to go public through a SPAC merger. It's going to be combining with Boax Acquisition Corporation in a $9 billion deal that includes debt. Joining us right now first on Squawk Box is WeWork. In an interview with CNBC, WeWork's new CEO, Sandeep Mathrani, got philosophical about the turn of events. You know, sometimes you don't pick the path, the path picks you. Maybe so. In this case, though, the SPAC path was one many companies were already picking. After spending years as a niche and somewhat derided part of the market, SPACs have gone mainstream. Yeah, it's all about the SPAC craze. Dan, have we hit peak SPAC? SPACs every day. We have segments, we do everything. In two, three, four years, I I can't imagine that there still aren't going to be SPACs. The SPAC excitement has drawn in everyone from activist investor Bill Ackman, to star athletes Shaquille O'Neal and Serena Williams. The traditional investment world has remained fairly skeptical of it all. It continues to see SPACs as risky and speculative. Here's Warren Buffett speaking at Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting just a few weeks ago. The gambling impulse is very strong, and occasionally it gets an enormous shove, and conditions lead to this place where more people are entering the casino than are leaving, and nobody tells you when the clock's going to strike 12 and it all turns to pumpkins and mice. So how did we get here? We talked with a reporter who's been on the forefront of it all, my colleague Nicholas Jasinski. Back in January 2020, very few people were actually talking about SPACs. But they always had a tight-knit group of believers, and they gathered at an annual conference. And in early 2020, Nick was there. 
How many people were there when you went? Probably a few hundred. There weren't a lot of reporters there, so I felt very popular. That's that's for sure. <laughs> but Barron's had noticed the shift around SPACs. After years of being the ugly duckling of the investment world, SPAC sentiment began to turn in 2019. And can you just give us a flavor of what it was like? I mean, what, 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 were people excited then? Did they foresee what was about to come? The entire SPAC world was very excited because 2019 had been a record year for SPACs when we had 59 IPOs and $13 billion raised, which is basically what happened in a month in early 2021. A whole year of SPAC activity in just one month. 248 SPACs raised $83.3 billion in IPO proceeds in 2020, which was more than the previous two decades combined. And those did about 80 deals, those 248 SPACs. A majority of them are still out in the market searching for companies. And then now in 2021, and most of this was just in the first three months of 2021, we had 312 SPAC IPOs that have raised $101 billion. And the average IPO size for SPACs has been getting bigger as well. So each SPAC going public has been raising more money. But if SPACs are just a way for a company to go public, well, we've had that for years. So what makes SPACs different from an IPO? Here's Nick. It does an initial public offering just like any other company does. But the difference is that a SPAC is not a business. It's just a pot of cash. So it raises money from IPO investors which goes into a trust. It's a bank account that belongs to the SPAC. And then there's a management team called the sponsors of the SPAC, whose job is to go out and find a company to merge with. If it sounds like investors are just writing a blank check, they basically are. The check goes to the SPAC's executive team, and only later do they decide what they're going to do with it. It's like giving your friend 100 bucks based on a promise they'll find you something nice. Not surprisingly, people were long skeptical of the idea. SPACs used to have a not-so-great reputation. They were seen as a last resort. So what you had was companies that didn't have any other options, couldn't pass the rigor of an IPO roadshow turning to SPACs because they wouldn't go public any other way. So what you had was some not-great companies going public via SPACs, and the stocks didn't do so well. But with money flowing so freely these days, why not outsource your next purchase? Think of a SPAC IPO as that moment you give the cash to your friend. In the SPAC world, they have two years to find something before they have to pay you back. So why is it all happening now? For one, as we've talked about this season, there are countless private companies that have delayed going public over the last decade. Partly because no one likes the costs or scrutiny of an IPO. SPACs are providing an alternative route to the public markets. And while they spent years under the radar, all it took was a few high-profile examples for everyone else to jump on the bandwagon. In the past few years, really 2017, 2018, 2019, you had higher quality sponsors. You had more legitimate investment banks like Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley getting involved on the underwriting side of the SPACs. And the results started to be better. You had some higher profile companies like DraftKings. Company DraftKings will be going public. Or Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic set to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Go public via SPACs back in 2019. Then the pandemic hit in 2020, markets seized up. Just like everything else, SPACs sold off. There were no new SPAC IPOs. After that, the Fed dropped rates to zero. There was this flood of liquidity into markets and a real hunger for growth stocks. And in a way, that's the perfect environment for SPACs. 
and you just had this flood of liquidity. There's cash everywhere, needs to go somewhere. And you had this foundation of the past few years of a maturing SPAC asset class and all the lawyers, the auditors, the underwriters, the sponsors, everybody around that, that was primed to go. And the pandemic market just provided the kicker for that. And it just built on itself. Outside of Wall Street, the IPO never had a lot of friends anyway. Venture capitalists and other private investors have been searching for alternative ways to enter the public markets for years. SPACs have just become the latest attempt to meet that demand. And this one might just stick. What has created the innovation for SPACs is that because the IPO process was so difficult and because we've had so much M&A activity in the public markets, the universe of publicly traded names has been declining and has been declining quite precipitously. That's Albert Wenger, managing partner at Union Square Ventures, who has invested in startups like Etsy, Twilio, and MongoDB. You have a shrinking universe of names, and you have an overpriced process of going public. I mean, that is the perfect market conditions for somebody to come along and say, well, I've got an alternative solution, and the SPAC is such an alternative solution. What really makes a SPAC different from an IPO is the process which Nick Jasinski has been trying to boil down in his stories for Barron's. It goes something like this. After a SPAC goes public, before it merges with a company, its shares are trading on an exchange, just like any other stock. Once the sponsors of the SPAC identify a target, they release the merger documents, they have a phone call with analysts and investors, they have detailed projections that they put out, and then there's the process of integrating the companies, all the legal requirements for doing a merger, And then at some point, the SPAC shareholders get to give their thumbs up or thumbs down on whether they want the merger to proceed or not. And assuming they do give their thumbs up, then the companies merge and the private company, which is the real business, takes over the SPAC's stock exchange listing. Usually the ticker changes and the SPAC essentially ceases to exist. Eventually, these companies trade just like any other public stock. But it's hard to get away from the SPAC origins. Once a SPAC always a SPAC. And that's largely because companies that go public via SPAC are held to different standards throughout the going public process. We've used the term S1 filing countless times on this podcast now, but with a SPAC, there isn't one. And that's ultimately where things get complicated and potentially controversial. So so rather than filing an S1, which is for an IPO, companies that merge with a SPAC, they have to put out something called an S4, which is a different filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Again, that's the same as any companies doing a merger, but compared to an IPO where the underwriters don't want to take liability for anything future looking because they have legal liability for those things. In a SPAC transaction, there's less liability for future looking statements because it's a merger and not an initial public offering where you're selling shares for the first time. The shares already exist. There are already shareholders who bought into them and they're just being merged with another company. Basically, the SEC holds IPO communications to the highest possible standard, and that's always made companies skittish to say anything too specific in their long-term projections. But with a SPAC, the rules are relaxed because it's treated like a merger, not an IPO. And that leaves SPAC companies free to make bold forecasts about their future. So when Virgin Galactic completed its SPAC merger in October 2019, the company said it would have $210 million in revenue in 2021, and nearly double that a year later. 
a host of electric vehicle companies have also forecast massive sales for 2025 and 2026, despite no actual revenue today. The most common criticism that I hear about SPACs is that it's really, it's hard to argue that the incentive is anything other than to make the numbers look as rosy as possible to get a higher valuation in the SPAC transaction. And that criticism is suddenly getting picked up in Washington. Last month, an SEC official issued a public statement questioning whether IPOs and SPACs should be treated differently. If SPACs were held to the same liability standards as IPOs, they would probably refrain from pie-in-the-sky type projections. The freedom to speak is likely pushing some companies to choose the SPAC route over traditional IPO. And that's an issue, according to the SEC. Is it appropriate that the choice of how to go public may determine or be determined by liability rules? The commission asked in its recent letter. It's a reasonable question when you consider that whether SPAC or IPO, the end result is the same. A company goes from being private to being public. So why should the process of getting there be any different? As we await the answer, the SPAC market has suddenly cooled. In the last month or so, SPAC activity has basically ground to a halt. There were a record 109 SPACs that went public in March. In April, the number fell to 10. It's not just because of SEC regulation, though. The kinds of companies that have gravitated towards SPACs, high-growth businesses with little in the way of current profits, have suddenly fallen out of favor with investors. A lot of the companies that have come out of SPACs have been more of those growth-oriented companies. Think about the space startups or the EV companies or sports gambling. In general, across the broader market, investors have been favoring more cyclical companies that are tied to the economic recovery that's underway now, rather than those growth stocks which have been so popular during the height of the pandemic. So a lot of post-SPAC companies have seen their share prices decline. So that's cooled the market a bit for SPACs in general. The highs and lows of the SPAC craze is encapsulated in the wild ride of Virgin Galactic. The space company's stock has gone from being loved to hated multiple times since it went public via SPAC almost two years ago. The shares are down 75% from their February peak. And it didn't help that just this week the company delivered another disappointing earnings report. Virgin continues to delay its highly anticipated first rides to space. That $210 million revenue projection the company made for 2021 when it went public, they're way behind. The company didn't have a dollar of sales in its first quarter. Space travel remains mostly promise, and you could say the same about SPACs. The scrutiny isn't going away, and the hype is no substitute for results. One thing that still hasn't changed is the need for private companies to keep raising money. And that will continue to involve public markets. Luckily, SPACs aren't the only alternative to a traditional IPO. But we'll talk more about that next week on The Readback. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. 
Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadback at barons.com. Thanks to Kathleen Smith, Nicholas Chazinski, and Albert Wenger. For more coverage on SPACs, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoft and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Next week on the show, Spotify, Slack, and Coinbase created disruptive businesses. So when it came time to go public, they didn't take the traditional Wall Street approach. It had somewhat of a rebellious history that I think probably helped lead to being willing to take a little bit more of a risk. We'll be back next week. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.